going on out there, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's been a minute. But welcome to the Man Cave Huddle. And I am your host. It is I, Craig. You know, sometimes, people, life hits you in the gut. And sometimes life, you get them old school beat down stomp outs type where it's like you get jumped or you just curl up in a little ball on the floor and you have a decision to make. Either stand up and, you know, get a good one in on someone or just take the L. You know, um, I just been taking the L for a minute. Just had a lot of stuff going on in my personal life. But things are getting a lot better now and things are going in the right direction, which has me fueled, which has me excited, which really has me amped up. And that's why I'm focused to do this podcast and just do what I like to do, which is just talk about sports. Now, um, I know you're hearing some extemporaneous noise, but you know, hey, we're not in a soundproof area, so just focus on the words that are coming out of my mouth right now. So, um, that's all about me. Things have been going good after just a little, I just had a little hiccup right there. But, um, you know, a lot has transpired since my last episode, and some of the things I wanted to get to in this episode were um, Sabrina Ionesco. She is the point guard for the New York Liberty of the WNBA. I wanted to talk about the NBA and the playing format and how a lot of people were like up and down, wishy-washy. NBA players are hating it, but I think TV executives and fans love it. And MLB no-hitters. What was once a phenomenon is now just, eh. But let's begin with second-year point guard from Oregon the west side, the second best side, playing for the New York Liberty. The city's so nice, they had to name it twice. Sabrina Ionesco. Now, she's a second-year point guard. Her rookie year didn't really count because she played like 20 minutes or I think maybe 20 seconds, it felt like, but maybe within the first half of the first game of her career last year, she suffered an ankle injury which ended her season. And she's back this year. And let me tell you something. I'm just going to run down the numbers that she had. She's only played six games in her career. So last year, as a rook, 18 points, five rebounds, four assists. Second year, veteran. Still three games. So she's at the mark where she was last year, right? I said 20 minutes into her career. Okay, fine. I lied. Three games into her career. So this year, three games in, 21 points, seven rebounds, nine assists. What she was very good at when she was in college was the triple-double. And I guess the year off, understanding how the league works, and just the ability to get her, her, her game to the WNBA level, WNBA level <coughs> she's already notched her first career triple-double in the WNBA. The player... Fastest six games to a triple-double. I'm talking there were other players that needed like 50-some-odd games that she did it in six games. When I watch her game, the player in the NBA who she reminds me of is most... See, I want to say Ray John Rondo because she's a pure point guard and her ability to control the game from a cerebral perspective. I want to say Jason Kidd because she grabs the ball right off the rim and it just feels like it's a dart 
right down the court, and you better be open because the pass is going to be right there. And if you're covered, she's going up for the layup. And the player that I'm going to go with is Russell Westbrook because she can do what Rondo and Kidd can do, but what she does that Westbrook does is she comes every night with the scoring. Because Kidd was good, but, you know, he would have those 10-point triple-doubles. Rondo was good, but you you couldn't early in his career when he was on the Celtics expect high-level point production night in and night out. Well, with Russell Westbrook, that guy could give you 20-20-20. And I'm not saying that's where Ionesco is, but she could give you 20-10-10. I want to compare her to Westbrook. She's special. Three games into her sophomore season, I just want to say, look out, New York, because with the Knicks on the precipice of the first playoff experience under Tom Thibodeau, you have the Giants last year expected to be a doormat, but showed life, showed pulse, showed competitiveness. The Jets... Going through a rebuild, coach-wise, got their new quarterback, had a solid draft. The Mets, with new ownership, with the owner that's going to do what it takes to win and just not look at the team as a toy, they're winning. And the Yankees are the Yankees. I'm just saying. Right now? Oh, oh, I forgot. And the Brooklyn Nets, the presumptive favorites to win the NBA title. If you're living in the state of New York right now, and we talk about the sports, oh, I even forgot one more. Yes, they count. The Buffalo Bills, the best team in football in the, in the state of New York. But yes, we claim in Buffalo because they in New York. If you're a New Yorker right now, it's real exciting seeing all these teams. I'm not saying they're going to the playoffs and other than the Nets, I'm not saying they're going to win a title. But all I'm saying is New York was getting beat down for a while, and now New York is competitive, and it feels damn good. Sabrina, do what you do. Nesco with the uh-oh, and do what you do with the Liberty. Now let's move on to the NBA and these playoff games. Now, um, this is the thing. The way this format works is Team 7 and 8, and I'm sorry, seeds seven and eight will play, will, and seeds nine and ten qualify for this playing tournament. It's not the playoffs. You are not in the playoffs. You've qualified for the playing. Okay. And what it is is that seeds seven and eight will play, and the loot and the winner. So meaning, if the seed eight beats seed seven, eight now becomes the seventh seed. So that winner of that 7-8 playing game will be the 7th seed. The loser of that game will play the winner of the 9-10 matchup. Now the winner of the 9-10 matchup playing the loser of that 7-8 seed could potentially be a team where you look at how does this playing work. The 9 seed who, when the season ended, you didn't qualify for the playoffs, all you need to do is win two games as you win the playoffs. Now, if you're a 7-8 team, you just need to win one game to win the playoffs. I mean, to be in the playoffs. Now, the thing is, 
a lot of the, the veterans and the players, they don't like it because they feel it's a disadvantage where a couple teams have to play extra week. And you know what? I always agree with the players, and they're right. But you know what? Watching that Warriors buzzer beater game where LeBron James, 30 feet out, needed to hit a three to win that, to send the, the, the Lakers to the seventh seed and the Warriors to play Memphis. Now, Memphis didn't even qualify for the playoffs. What if now they beat the Warriors and they become the eighth seed? I know what you're saying. Oh, what if they become the eighth seed? It's not like they're going to beat the Jazz. And were the Warriors, are the Warriors guaranteed to beat the Jazz? I'm just saying. I mean, what I like about this style is, is that it just makes me feel as though it's a one and done because there are so many times when you're playing in the NBA that you feel so reluctant to want to watch an entire series because you feel as though the first game, it doesn't matter. The second game is when it'll get interesting. Okay, three and four is now it really starts. And when it's the first seed versus the eighth seed, unless it's an upset special, we're okay. The Warriors could potentially upset the Jazz in the first round. Could the Warriors beat the Jazz? I don't think so. But with this one-and-done format, it gives you that NCAA tournament vibe where it's like, yo, look, it doesn't matter who the better team is. It's about who gets hot and who's playing better that day. And that reminds me of the NFL because there are so many games that transpire where it's not about the team who's better that wins. It's about the team who played better that day that wins. And I think that as a level of excitement that A, a lot of players aren't used to, and B, frankly, it's exciting for the viewer because now in the fourth quarter, there's a little bit of added drama. Because let's say you're down by 20 points and you sit there and say, let me, let, let, let me, let me sit some of my players. We'll get them in the next game. No, y'all are going to play this out and we're going to try and make a run at this. A little bit more exciting, I tell you. Now, the last thing I wanted to get to were Major League Baseball and these no-hitters. And a no-hitter is basically when a pitcher pitches a game where he doesn't get hit. Nobody from the uh, hits the ball and gets on base. Now, this is the thing. When I look at a no-hitter, it was something that was deemed to be special. And it also, it just feels as though it was appointment TV to watch it go down. But now I feel like with so many other things in sports and with analytics, it's just watered it down to where it's like, ah, okay. Like, remember when a triple-double in the NBA was like a big deal? Now that Russell Westbrook averaged it for a season, ah, okay, a triple-double, big deal. Or I remember a 1,000-yard season rushing in the NFL was a big deal. Now it's like half the league rushes for a 1,000 yards. I remember when 4,000 yards passing was elite quarterback territory. Now 4,000 yards passing is where the good wide receivers, that's where the quarterbacks they want to play with. And damn near 80% of the league passes for 4,000 yards. And the no-hitter, this year, if they've had six no-hitters and we are not even at the halfway point of the season. The MLB 
max they've ever had was seven. Now that makes you think to yourself, what's going on? You know what that makes me feel, though? That a lot of these batters, they are so trained to hit home runs and they are not trained to get on base, to potentially steal a, a base and manufacture a run. It's all about the home run or nothing. And you're seeing that where players will shift, the defenses will shift and players will hit into the shit because their goal is to hit a home run as opposed to getting it out. And that's crazy because there comes a point where I understand the immediate impact of a home run, but what about, hey, I can't hit a home run, but let me just manufacture myself getting on base and now we got to duck on the pond and we could get busy. That's just my opinion. I just think players nowadays, they want to go in a different direction in hitting because if you can hit a home run, you get paid. And I can't fault anybody for wanting to get paid. Now, there was this other situation where the manager of the Chicago White Sox, Terry uh, Terry LaRusa, they were whooping up on the Minnesota Twins. I'm talking like it was like a plus 10 point, something like 15-1. And it, they're late in the game. And he tells the batter, look, take a couple pitches. Try not to hit a home run. We don't need to embarrass these guys. We're beating them by like 10 plus points. What does the guy do up at bat? Knocks it out of the park, right? And the Roosters upset. And it started a great stir and a point of contention and conversation where the old school rules were, there were unwritten rules and you didn't break them because you would be policed by your teammates. Where now, when the new school players are like, look, my job is to hit home runs. My job is to get on base. And I'm going to be a savage in the box doing that. And not only am I doing that for my team, I'm doing that for myself because you're paying me based on my statistics. And that one home run could mean the difference between me getting a seven-year deal and me getting a five-year deal. You know what I'm saying? So these guys want to, I don't want to say um, inflate their stats, but it's hard to tell a player don't do something that's going to benefit you because you want to do it for the good of the game. I get that, but I think there are certain instances where things need to change because the pitcher that was pitching was not a real pitcher. He was a position player. Pitchers are looked at as such valuable commodities nowadays where they said, we want to save everybody that we have, so we'll have a position player come in and just pitch the rest of the game, and we're just going to take this L. Now, CC Sabathia, on the R2C2 podcast, he went off and said, look, F that. If you put a position player out there, I'm swinging for the fences because my job is to go out there and be a savage. And it's not my fault that you guys think. It's not my fault that we have a 10-plus lead. It's not my fault that I can hit a home run. I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. Maybe they do need to institute, like they do in Pop Warner, a 10-run rule. Where if you're beating a team by 10 points, game is automatically over at whatever point in the game it is. I mean, you complain about the game being so long. How many games do you see where you see the score being 10-1? A 12-2, uh, 14-5, something like that. Well, what if you got a 10-run lead and in the fourth inning, boom, game's over? Who's going to complain about that? 
I know maybe the fans because they paid, but still, you're solving the problem of the long of of f- baseball being so long. Because look, the way you go about things change, but structure always needs to be in place. And I understand the old school way of not wanting to show up your opponent not wanting to embarrass your opponent and having respect for your opponent. But if your opponent is not going to put the best competitive players out on the field of play to compete, then yes, you should take advantage of that and say, if this is what you're going to do to us, this is how we're going to clap back. And it's split right down the middle. This is straight up old school versus new school. The old school feels one way. The new school is like, fuck that. I'm just saying. I gave you my opinion. Check out the film on YouTube and then check out that snippet of what CC Sabathia had to say. He didn't hold he didn't he didn't hold any fucks back when he was talking either. Oh, let me tell you, when you hear what he has to say. But anyway, um, thank you for listening. You know, I appreciate everyone. Thank you for listening. And bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>